Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle uh, take turns introducing each other to films, and uh, in this way we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of August 2020, and uh, we're at the conclusion of our event month for August. Uh, That would be Anime August, uh, the second annual Anime August, in fact. Uh, And essentially what that entails is uh, I take uh, the reins of creative control uh, for the show. Basically, I make all the programming decisions for the month. And uh, Kyle is not super well-versed in the world of Japanese animation. Uh, So last year, I took it upon myself to kind of like ease him into the waters of that particular medium and uh this year we're we kind of went all over the map with it um we're we kind of like bookended uh with a couple of like artsy pieces and then uh, in the middle it's just a good chunk of crap <laughs> with a couple of video game adaptations uh, that being fatal fury the motion picture and street fighter 2 the animated movie uh so this week though uh the conclusion of anime august uh, we're going to be covering the film uh, Jinro. Uh, depending on who you ask, uh, there's also a subtitle, The Wolf Brigade. Um, this is from 1999, directed by Hiroyuki Okiura. Uh, and uh, yeah, Kyle, uh, how did you feel about this one? Um, this one I wasn't too crazy about. This one was, uh, I, I guess this would have been a VHS cover rental. Uh, I think that the the cover looks really neat. And I'm sure if you've been on Prime... Uh, you've seen the cover for this at least once. Just stylistically, it's really cool looking. Um, so I was expecting this to be a little bit more of an actiony kind of uh, dystopian um, anime movie, but there's very very little action. Um, but what little bit you get is uh, pretty cool. I'll, I'll give them. The, there's some brutal violence at the beginning of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... I don't think it's possible to animate squibs, but somehow they did it. (laughs) This movie has some juicy fucking squibs, even though it's all hand-drawn animation. But um, yeah, uh, this film is not particularly action-heavy. In fact, it's in some ways the complete opposite of that. It is uh, bookended by um, a pretty explosive opener and uh, concluded with also some good violence and and also like some emotional catharsis, uh, which is lacking throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, we were talking before we recorded. This movie's very, uh, it's very melancholy. It's very, it's very gray in in how it's presented. Um, it's it's not necessarily flat, but there's just like this like feeling of not so much like dread, but just like a little bit of like sorrow or like sadness that kind of permeates every frame in the movie throughout throughout its runtime. But um, yeah, uh, the the cover art for this film um, is a little bit deceiving um, because the the iconography of the uh, I, we should probably get this out of the way right away. Um, the pronunciation of this word. Um, so the word uh, Kerberos or Kerberos mm-hmm. um, is used quite a bit, um, both on like Wikipedia and uh, in the film itself, and this refers to Cerberus. Um, it's the same thing it's the same creature but uh, you get this sometimes with greek slash like roman mythology where um you have heracles versus hercules and stuff like that um in my mind it's always going to be fucking cerberus yeah, but cerberus. Um, when you see that when you see it spelt like on like the wikipedia for the film it's it's spelt Ker- kerberos um 
anyway uh seeing the the iconography of that particular like armor for for the people that belong to the Kerberos uh unit it makes you think it's going to be like a, a war movie almost or like an action movie of some sort but it's certainly not no. <laughs> but um have you ever heard of the uh, kill zone video games i have yes um it's it's so blatant how how they kind of like borrowed that that design um for the I think they're called uh, Hellgast or Helgens um in Killzone. They totally ripped off the the armor design for the bad guys in those games um from this media property which uh apparently and I I only I barely knew about this um before I first saw this film. Uh I actually saw this film like the year it came out. I had a friend in high school that was bootlegging the shit out of like every anime ever at the time. <laughs> and, and uh I think I watched it unsubtitled the first time, so I it was strictly like a mood piece. I didn't get any of the dialogue or anything. It was actually kind of an interesting way to watch the movie because I I don't think you get much more out of it like if you understand it or not because it's more just like a a look and a feel kind of movie. Yeah. Um. um I mean, anytime that you're stepping into dystopian, it's uh you're kind of setting a tone it's always supposed to be dreary it's never supposed to be happy nobody's happy in these in these worlds um well at least the the majority of citizens are not happy in these worlds um but yeah i was i was expecting a little bit more violence because of that i like you have a a group that you've so like the plot uh, from what i can gather was that we had um, the bomb fell it, it was unclear as to what bomb it was but if i feel like this is kind of like a historical fiction where i guess the u.s dropped the bomb and then um this was the opportunity for a how would you say like a authoritarian uh, authoritarian kind of a government system to come in and then you have your rebels your dead rabbits uh and then they're like uh protesting and stuff and then they create a super police basically and then they kind of wipe a lot of people out but they're still hints of the dead rabbits uh, around, you know, trying to take back over. Um, unsuccessfully, I believe. Uh, <laughs> um, I, it, the ending kind of, because uh, I was kind of disengaged after a little bit, and I it, like to try to jump back in. I'm like, I'm not entirely sure what's happening. And then the ending, I'm like, ah, uh, huh? Did he? <laughs> what just happened? Um, so you might have to, like, uh, explain it a little bit to me. Um, but I was going to go ahead and say at the top, that um, I've I've had difficulty viewing anime. Um, I didn't grow up with it. Uh, my brother watched a lot of Dragon Ball Z. And I think he might have watched another uh, another show around that time. Uh, he was really into Dragon Ball Z for a minute. Um, had action figures, all kinds of stuff, and uh, it just never appealed to me. So going in as an adult, it's like, well, I don't know about this. But the first thing I watched was Ninja Scroll, which was a lot of fun. I really I really enjoyed that. That was a good time. Um, but I realized that watching films like this where it's supposed to have a little bit of heart or like like some drama to it, um, and the reason why it's hard for me to engage in these films is like I can't connect with cartoon characters like that. It's I just it doesn't it doesn't translate to me and it's hard for me to engage if I can't really connect with what's happening to the character. Well, also it, I think that's interesting that you bring that up because I, I totally get that. Um, obviously I, I don't feel the same way. Um, but I will concede that this is not a character piece by any means, uh, this film in particular, and also Vampire Hunter D, like they make almost no attempt to give any sort of depth to any of the characters. It's all surface detail at, at best. 
And this one actually plays into the themes of the story. Um, and we'll get to that at some point, but I do think that's interesting because, um, I feel like, I feel like this movie is designed like to kind of like be confounding for you in particular, (laughs) (laughs) just because it's a, it's such a massively Japanese film in so many ways. Like it's, it's very foreign. Like I certainly had to flex some muscles I didn't know I had in order to like grasp some of some of the like the depth to the story um i happen to really really like this film but i i think it's interesting though that there's like a little bit of a disconnect for you and i I think part of that might also have to do with the fact that um you really appreciate acting like as an art form like it's something that in countless conversations we've had you you're able to like pinpoint what it is you like about a performance or like what it is you like about a performer and when you're given an animated character, you're denied those subtleties mm-hmm. because you're it's presented to you through too many filters. Where it's kind of like how you sometimes take issue with like uh, CGI or at least like excessive CGI. Yes, where it's like there is a performance under that, but you can't see it because all the animators are having their way with it. So it's like it's robbing you of like that human element, that human connection. And when you have like a voice actor giving their all in the booth, um, but then handing off their performance to an animator who gets to you know match it as best they can, or in some ways not match it, like like just do whatever is appropriate for the film. Sometimes that doesn't flow with the with the audio element of it with the vocal performance. Um, so I could see how there'd be like a little bit of a disconnect for you. Well, I go into movies emotionally, like how I choose what film I'm going to watch. I go in like, how am I feeling about that? And if I if I'm going into a film that I know that I'm probably going to be engaged like emotionally with the characters, I'm like I'm expecting that. So I guess maybe I need to to change like how I'm going in to an anime film, like in the in the future, or like you were saying that it's more of a medium that's better for if you're going to develop a character you can't do it in an hour and a half or two hours with the film it takes time it's going to take like more like an episode like episodes like 30 to 45 minutes you're kind of building on the characters well i mean i've said it so many times um in both iterations of anime august uh anime is generally uh, produced on the cheap generally um if if a corner can be cut generally the studio will push to cut that corner um, so in television animation, where you have, you know, hours and hours of content that needs to be produced, back in the day, they used to, you know, reuse animation constantly. Like Dragon Ball, mm-hmm. part of why, part of why, I, like, started to scoff at stuff like that is that you had a lot of instances where you'd have fight scenes that would go on for ep- multiple episodes, <laughs> uh, and the animation that you're watching, if you have a trained eye, which I do. Kyle is making a face right now. He's making the constipation face. I'm making the um, the, the, the power up face. The, yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you have countless loops of animation that are reused over and over and over again, and it's all because they're trying to save a buck. Mm-hmm. Because every every time you have someone draw a frame of animation, that's man that's man slash lady hours put towards a task that they have to get paid for. Hopefully, <laughs> Scooby Doo would have driven you nuts. I think if your mom had let you watch Scooby Doo when you were a kid, you would have gotten you would have liked like the first couple episodes. Like, mom, we have to go get me a Scooby Doo stuffed animal, and you would have brought that stuffed animal home. And then after like six or seven episodes of Scooby Doo, you would 
just like twist its head, twist the head <laughs> off of it because you're like, it's the same background. They're just running in front of the same background. No, at that run cycle, mm-hmm. every single. Yeah. Why do you think they walk exactly like parallel to the screen? Yeah, right. Like exactly like sideways. Yeah. Like it, it looks like they're in a video game. It's, it's because they're trying to save money. And not only that, like if you want to dig even deeper, um, Yogi Bear. The, the whole reason he has a fucking bow tie is because they're animating his head separate from his body. Gotcha. Meaning they if they can save that much time just animating his head while his body doesn't move at all. <laughs> and it hides the seam line, the, the cut between the two the two cells, basically. Speaking of performers that uh that I had this person was on my mind yesterday, uh Peter Sarsgaard. Uh there's something about him that no matter what performance he's in, he grosses me out. I don't know. He creeps me out the way anything. If he's a good guy, he's a bad guy. He's just fucking weird. Well, he has those sleepy eyes and that very soft that way voice. of speaking. Oh, yeah. I had to watch a, an orientation video. And the guy doing the video was doing like a little bit, bit of ASMR. And, you know, we can't do that. Uh, and he just like he enunciated everything he was saying and then he would kind of trail off i'm like so it made me if it, it was, i was uncomfortable <laughs> so if you're in a lecture hall there'd be some asshole up in the back and it's like oh yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> he's jerking me off with his words <laughs> yeah you just hear it up in the back <laughs> in the cheap seat Knock it off. but but the uh the point i was trying to make about <laughs> about the animation was uh um Traditionally, Japanese animation is produced on the cheap. Um, I I don't know if that's still the case, being as there's a lot more eyes transfixed on it right now because they're producing for an international audience now. It's not strictly a Japanese domestic audience. So the money figures might be very different now. So I could be completely in the wrong. But um, this movie is actually an example of what, of what I'm trying to get to here. And that would be um, a lot of... Uh, Japanese animated features like films I uh, come about as a result of like a culmination of some sort of larger media property um, so like uh, the castle of Cagliostro uh, is the first uh, Hayao Miyazaki directed film as part of the Rupin Lupin the third uh, franchise which has been around since the 60s and I think that was made in like either the late 70s or the early 80s uh, so it had like the the social cachet to warrant the extra expenditure where it's like there's an embedded audience already we we can make a feature film with high quality animation because people know what it is and they'll, and they'll flock to the theater to see it same with this with Jinro is that it's part of a much larger media property um, Ninja Scroll I don't think that was the case but Vampire Hunter D as we talked about at the beginning of the month is part of like a a massive series of novels and there was also an OVA slash feature film produced in the 80s so it was a thing um, which results in a lot of these big budget feature films um, having far superior animation but in terms of like engagement for like newcomers like getting invested in the characters and stuff there's a lot of pieces missing because they're just assuming that the people who give a shit about this already know all this so we're just gonna brush it off and just assume you can catch up um, have you seen the live action, uh, live action film? I started to watch it, but I, d- I just didn't, uh, I don't know, either I wasn't gonna have enough time for it, or I just, it just wasn't clicking at that moment. I'm like, you know what, I'm not quite in the mood to sit down for this. 
Oh, uh, yeah, that's actually a funny story. Um, so folks at home, you obviously wouldn't be aware of this, but Kyle and I used to work together. And um, I think when we were working together was when I first told you about this film, mm-hmm. about Jinro. And, and just so happened that in 2018, a, a Korean live action film uh, based on the same media property, I think actually it's supposed to be a remake of this story oh. specifically. Um, but it just so happened that I think after I told you about Jinro, um, I caught wind of the of the Korean movie. Um, I think it's called like Ilang or something. I, I don't know Korean pronunciation, yeah. sorry. But um, it is supposed to be a remake of this. And no, I haven't seen it because it's a apparently like a Netflix exclusive. But I remember when it came out, I told you about it. And I was like, hey, you remember that the, yeah. the red goggles thing? Um, apparently there's a new, brand new movie coming out. Um, maybe check it out. I would like to um, watch but it. I'd very much like to see it. Yeah, I would too. I think it's the same director as I Saw the Devil. Ooh, um, so it'll be bloody. <laughs> I Saw the Devil is pretty good. Uh, I yeah. remember I remember liking that. Um, yeah. So I have a, 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 an anime exercise I'm going to have you do at the top this time. I think it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> um, and I'll go ahead and say, if you want to think about it, like what kind of um, what kind of story or what kind of movie or characterization would you like in an um, anime format like for instance we've talked about the silmarillion uh kind of that early like that uh early tolkien stuff would be pretty interesting to see i think um in uh, japanese animation i think it'd be kind of fun um are there any is there any other things uh that you think would uh, translate well to the format uh like you mean like american media properties or like non non non-japanese media properties non-japanese media properties yeah okay um well, I mean, we could. I'm gonna start thinking out loud. Uh, so, Silmarillion is something we talked about on a previous episode, and I do think that that would be interesting. Um, although, uh, in my experience, anime part of a recurring element in like the much more popular Japanese animated production seems to be uh, emotionality. Um, in general, it's pretty common to have very young protagonists uh, in Japanese animated properties, especially like um, serialized products. Mm-hmm. So like things that are adapted from manga, things that are published weekly where a new chapter comes out every week. So you're meant to like live with these characters for years at a time um, and just like watch them grow by inches every week or whatever. Um, a lot of those stories, a lot of those serialized products have very young protagonists um, and they tend to be very big with their emotional moments. Everything tends to be told in very broad strokes and you have a lot of like big moments and stuff like that. And everything you've told me about the Silmarillion points to it not really having that. It's more like mythic storytelling where it's not so much like so-and-so has an intense beef with so-and-so. It's more just like, oh, oh, oh no, Kyle's making beefs. a face. Oh, it's, no, the whole book is beefs. That's the thing. <laughs> that, that's, the book that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, we have... We have uh like elves fighting elves elves fighting dwarves men fighting men men fighting elves uh we have giant monsters fighting um the eldar like think beings that are larger than man like larger than humans but not quite to the scale of like a uh what what's the term the japanese monster term the oh kaiju yeah not, kaiju yeah like the character Melkor is that size, whereas um, um, Fainor or somebody would be um, larger than human, um, 
but still like very human like and then you have uh, men who are actually smaller see what i'm picturing right now kyle is if if they were to adapt the silmarillion to japanese animation you in particular would be t- like tearing your non-existent hair out <laughs> if they actually did it and like guys this is it, it's like it's kind of like it's sacred like don't touch the summer like don't don't mess with it just leave it as it is it's perfect the way it is just don't touch it um, no kyle like try and try and follow along i'm not sure how well you remember it um but do you remember the last 10 minutes of wonder woman i remember it yes do you remember how dumb that was and how clunky and stupid it felt See, to be watching that? I felt I felt uncomfortable, uncomfortable. watching that because I, I I was yes I'm a little uncomfortable because I was I was watching it with my parents and I was like sinking into my chair just like <laughs> oh no this needs to stop I'm like looking at my dad and he's like this is fucking stupid yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's how I felt during Tombstone uh, it was just well that's kind of what I mean it's like the end of Wonder Woman is just like every yeah every dumb like hackneyed script element you could imagine coming about in like a hero versus villain confrontation they actually did it it was like it's okay if it's masters of the universe and it's frank langella like Mm -hmm. hamming it up like that's expected but the rest of the movie was actually pretty fucking solid and then it's just like oh no we ran out of ideas i think you kind of i think we now in this in this in this era of filmmaking, I think you kind of have to judge a film by how it was supposed to be seen. Um, Wonder Woman was supposed to be seen on the big screen. It just it, that's that's where you're going to make your money. It's just supposed to be seen in the theater, and it's supposed to be a fun time. As far as that is concerned, I'm like that works. If you're going back and watching it again, like just on your TV at home and trying to like actually get into it, I'm like it. It's just not as good. Like even like those Marvel movies, I've gone back and watched a few of them. I'm like, yeah, it's just not the same. It's not the same as it is on the big screen when you're in the theater. It's an experience there. It's not as much fun when you're sitting down with it. Yeah, that's actually part of why I'm curious to see that uh, Warcraft movie. I've heard it's very bad, mm. um, but the look of it makes me think like. This looks really dumb. <laughs> it looks really expensive, but obviously it worked for one billion Chinese. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I feel like if they were to adapt the Silmarillion, it would be just like lights with sound, and they would do the thing that they've done in seemingly every Japanese animated film that we've covered in the past two years, and just like brush a lot of the characterization and depth to the side, and just uh have a lot of fan service in the form of like just so-and-so shows up to do a thing Mm -hmm. and then you either know who they are or you don't and and then the movie keeps rolling and they just keep throwing special effects at you until you just like want to puke out your eyeballs yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i'll have to come back to to that question yeah i'll have to think on that but i think thanks though i'll i'll make sure to revisit before we or conclude the recording so what is it do you like about this movie what 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 what's good um it's interesting because it i'm kind of on the same page with you in terms of like um emotional investment you feel kind of like almost like passive or like vacant when you're watching it like you just devoid of emotion when you're watching it it, it does have like a, a sense of melancholy to it and it does kind of wear on you at some point um but 
I think I think we've both actually learned a lot about how we individually kind of approach this this kind of stuff because you as you said earlier um, it's difficult for you to, to connect to animated characters at least these kinds of animated characters um, in my case uh, I'm I'm always attracted to Japanese animation because they well just animation in general um, when they do things that you wouldn't expect them to do uh, mostly because in American animation, um, it's not so much the case these days. It seems like we're getting a lot more experimental, kind of like how we were in like the early 90s mm-hmm. with like our real monsters and like Ren and Stimpy and shit. Yeah. But uh, we're starting to come back to that where things are very irreverent and just crazy and like all the rules are kind of being tossed out the window in terms of um, how to design characters and how how to like like basic animation principles of how to move a character and stuff. But um, part of what I like about this movie is that um, they make a very strong commitment to trying to animate realism. Yeah. Um, because even the character designs, this is a very rare instance of a Japanese animated film where the people are intended to be Japanese and actually look it. Um, this is the most realistic one we've done. I think this is yeah. This is almost like just a, a regular movie that you would watch. Yeah, in fact, uh, like I said, it's based on a larger media property. Um, I, I forgot to mention it, but it's uh, written by Mamoru Oshii, uh, who directed Ghost in the Shell, which we covered last year. Um, he intended direct, to direct this, but instead uh, he was busy and he handed off to Hiroyuki Okiura, um, who does not have many directing credits. He's largely an animator like the guy who actually does the drawings Mm -hmm. and he probably drew a lot of this film as well but um this is part of a much larger multimedia franchise like there's like experimental animations there's two live action films that preceded this there's a manga that ran for like 12 years um it's a vast media franchise that this is actually my only exposure to it um i really fuck i saw those the the other two live action films at half price books a few years ago and i mm. didn't buy them and they're super fucking rare and expensive now oh really um because as far as i know they've only ever been printed on dvd both in japan and america oh uh, so they're rare no matter where you go um but yeah uh mamoru oshi uh his fingerprints are all over this and uh yeah, the, the the way they design the animation in this, it's really fascinating. That it's like it, it is supposed to take place in 1950s Japan, and just based on like the facial construction of the characters, it's like it's so rare to see people in a Japanese animated film actually look Japanese. Like, it, like just like little things, like oh my god, that's a Japanese nose. <laughs> it's like you know, because it's so common to have like anime characters have like aquiline like yeah. triangular noses and stuff it's like that's so rare among, among japanese people like none of my relatives look like that like, they don't... all got smooshed noses <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have like the like in some of the ones i've watched it's like everybody else looks normal and then the girls are like big-eyed uh like just don't fit in with the rest of the characters in this it doesn't even do that yeah um i mean it is a Japanese animated film, so they do get a little bit scandalous. Um, there are a couple of shots of skirts where it's like, hmm, getting kind of close there, buddy. Like, did we really need to have that scene transition, like, uh, via a POV shot running behind a girl up a staircase? It's like, did we really need that? Hmm? Is that art? Because <laughs> I know I know it is to you, but just so you know, a lot of people are going to see this. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was uh, animated by Production IG, who... Um, 
just like every animation house, they do a lot of different things. Um, but it seems like they have a particular knack for um, realistic human movement. Um, I don't know if it's rotoscoped, but I want to say some of it is because there's some there's some very simple instances of people running, or like just like the the way their the, their coats flow in the wind and like the particular way in which they move their arms looks too precise to the point that's like I think they had a video or a photo reference for that. Mm. Um, but in addition to human bodies, though, um, and this is really cool that they do both like at the top like at the top level um they also do um rigid things like mechanical things uh, exceedingly well it's actually kind of it's absolutely gorgeous to look at like to see something that's supposed to be metal and rigid um handled in an animated film and just see it like behave physically as it should in real life it's like damn like <laughs> like i don't i don't know what kind of fucking crazy math you had to do to to like make that all look the way it's supposed to look but um, there's a there's a thing like in in Japanese animation like uh, gun porn and like vehicle porn is a thing, <laughs> um, and this movie has quite a bit of both. Uh, to be honest, there's a lot of trolleys in this movie that are lovingly animated, a lot of cars and a lot of German fucking guns. <laughs> yeah, that was the other thing was the um, when I first saw this, I think uh, I first saw like the uh, the thumbnail for it. Um, I think it was around. Uh, I I had played Nazi Nazi zombies uh, a while back, and then I saw the cover for this, and I also thought it had something to do with Overlord. Uh, oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so when I saw it, I'm like, that's I think having those two things as a frame of reference, like having those two things in mind, I kind of went into this thinking this is gonna be this is gonna be more fun, like this is gonna be a fun one. Um, that cover art is just it's just misleading, man. It looked way more. It looks like this is going to be way more badass than it actually is. Um, are you talking about the art where he's standing in front of the moon? Or, like, the one where he's, like, hunched over and, like, battle-ready? <laughs> Which one? Uh, for general. Oh, and um, it's the the eyes. The eyes looking at you. Okay. Because the, the cover that that I'm used to, um, and the one that I have on the DVD that I watch this on, um, is uh, someone wearing the uh, protect gear. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the red goggles. Uh, um, standing in front of a full moon, like on top of like a pile of rubble, and see. it's kind of ambiguous as to what the tone of it's going to be, other than harsh. Uh, you, you don't get the sense that it's going to be action oriented, other than the fact that he's wearing military gear and is carrying a fucking MG forty two. See that <laughs> one's even more misleading. The one I have, it's like he's kind of coming at you in okay. in the gear. Gotcha. Um, but yeah. I, I think the design elements of, of this movie, and that's kind of what I was talking in a roundabout way about, is, is largely what attracts me to it, mm -hmm. is uh, just the, the background designs, like all the paintings are so gorgeous. Um, the way the characters move and and just the the animation of the, the rigid elements, like all the props that all the characters handle. It's just like, this came out in 1999, so it's like, we're still hand painting and hand drawing a lot of this stuff. So like the digital stuff wasn't, it hadn't taken complete control. Um, I don't know. They, they could have, uh, um, did the coloring like digitally at, at this point in time, they were certainly doing that, uh, to save money and everything. Um, ooh, the early two thousands and like serialized Japanese animated products was 
rough because <laughs> you you could tell that somebody just took the paint bucket and like dropped it onto like half of the character and they're like well i guess he's gonna be teal <laughs> it's like it's like so we're, we're not gonna do any like variations or like we're not gonna add any like gradations to the color nope he's gonna be teal guy <laughs> are you other examples of ones of uh uh films like this where it's not it's not really fantasy it's just like it's just a movie um, well, Mamoru Oshii, his, that seems to be like his wheelhouse. Um, and like I said, he, he was like, he shepherded this whole franchise. So he definitely wrote this film and he, he didn't direct it, but his fingerprints are all over it. So anything made by him or relating to him seems to fall into this category. Like Ghost in the Shell kind of touches on that. Mm. Where it's, it's very much a sci-fi film, but the sci-fi elements are played up. They're not played up. It's it's just like this is the world and nobody in the room is impressed by any of this, so you the viewer shouldn't be either. Um, and uh, Pat Labor, which I've brought up basically every episode of the podcast, <laughs> um, really really falls into this category as well. Um, in fact, this director worked on several of those films. Uh, the whole the whole like overarching plot of the Pat Labor series is that it takes place in like near future Japan. And uh, they have mechs now, like like 20, 20 foot tall, 25 foot tall mechs. So not gigantic, but very large. And uh, they're used for all, all manner of purposes. So they could be used for like construction. The military has certainly adopted them and whatnot. Um, and the whole concept is that they have to create an entirely separate police force for crimes uh, involving those things. Mm-hmm. So like if somebody robs a bank with a mech, we need a mech to combat it. Um, and the way that the world is presented to you, it's just like all the characters um, are used to this technology and it's just like an everyday thing. Um, and the first film doesn't necessarily have the same tone, but the second and the third film definitely have like this kind of like dreary tone that Jinro has as well. Um, can't recommend those movies enough. Uh, they're, I don't know if you would like them anymore, um, given that they have some similarities to this one. Although they're quite a bit funnier than this <laughs> that that much is certain um, mostly because uh, uh the stories are about um the police force or people involved with the police force and you get a lot more characters to talk to and and see different angles of and you know that definitely encompasses some comic relief and there's three films so you certainly get to know the characters quite a bit better than you would in this the voice acting was misleading for me um in this it in uh, some of the ones I've watched, it's like the voices just do not at like match the characters. This one it does, um, but I listening to some of the voice actors, I'm like, that sounds like this person. Like uh, it sounded like uh, actors that I knew of, actors that I'd heard before. And since last week, Brian Cranston uh, was actually one of the voices. I was like, there's this has got to be like somebody I know. It was nobody. I didn't know any of the voice actors. Um, but I think they match pretty well in this. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know that I know any of the uh, English voice actors. Um, I'm, I want to say most of them are very prolific uh, in the dubbing industry. I think this was a a, a Viz video production. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people that were involved in Fatal Fury uh, may have had some like snippets here and there, mm. like just like background characters and whatnot. Um, I actually watched this in the in the original Japanese because I have the DVD. 
Um, and I think that does make a difference because, like I said, this is a very intrinsically Japanese story. Um, and I may as well get into what I mean by that. And that's the fact that, like, the, the individual characters in this have very little bearing on the story. This is a story about organizations. Um, this is a story about uh, kind of like the push and pull that happens in, uh, in the power struggles between organizations or uh you know, anarchist movements mm-hmm. that are pushing back up against both of them. So like Kyle had said at like the top of the recording, um, this takes place in like 1950s Japan. So uh, World War II concluded, uh, as far as I understand, the same way it did in real life. But then there's like a divergent timeline element where um, there was uh, some economic concerns um, in post-war Japan in this storyline. Uh, and I guess the occupation era has kind of receded. So uh, the American presence or the allied presence in Japan has pulled back just like it did in real life. Um, although I would imagine they still have bases and stuff just like in real life. Um, anyway, what what this results in is like a, a power struggle slash power vacuum where they um, there's an anarchist movement in the capital and a Japanese government like marshals their resources and assembles a like paramilitary unit essentially that operates strictly within the capital which is the the cerberus unit that the that wear the armor that's so iconic with the red goggles and stuff um and this kind of mirrors uh like 1800s japan where they had the shinsengumi who were like the capital police where it was in the the post uh post of uh feuding states period where uh the era of the samurai was kind of like over and it actually became like illegal to carry swords in the in cities uh but to you know because the uh because things don't change overnight basically Mm -hmm. um they had to establish like a localized police force that did carry swords and did take care of business and were known to be very brutal um so it's kind of like that where um they have japan has a self-defense force right now where they're only allowed to take action against opposing forces that take action against them first but i guess the capital police in, in this storyline are just like whatever whatever they have to do they can do uh, so they have free reign to do whatever and like the fascistic overtones are like definitely like like un- unmistakable in this film mm-hmm. like just the just the aesthetics of it it's like there's a heavy like nazi german influence in the design elements and it's not a it's definitely a considered element that all the people in this particular police force use german weapons um whereas like all the all the rebels like the anarchists and stuff they they use foreign weapons like british or russian guns and stuff um that that's the gun porn element of the story for sure no. um but yeah the story really boils down to um the like fascist police force the capital defense force kind of um being phased out because it's not a good look um, and the populace is kind of wary of the fact that they have like literal machine gun carrying like armored soldiers marching around the capital every day um so the japanese government's like mm, could you guys like cut it out like maybe stop shooting people and stuff um and it it's kind of a story about how organizations uh the inertia um that comes with developing and fostering an, an organization where it's like a thing that is brought into existence 
naturally will continue will do whatever it takes to remain with it, remain in existence even if it's not sensible um this reminds me of uh one of the problems that i had with uh episode seven um and i didn't realize until now what one of the things that bothered me um whenever you have um some kind of fascist um troop like you have your stormtroopers your nazis um, in this case you've got your your police basically i don't like any kind of characterization or humanization of somebody within that organization if that makes any sense so stormtroopers episodes four through six nothing they're just stormtroopers they're just cannon fodder <laughs> um but then finn um, an important character in the sequels he's a stormtrooper and they they make him like oh no i don't want to do this i'm like well i don't like that i like stormtroopers being evil all the time same with like nazis like i haven't seen a film where we've tried to like humanize a nazi soldier i'm sure there's one out there like somebody who did not want to be in that situation but it's kind of a bummer it just kind of like no 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 i want to hate these people you can't tell me that they're also human <laughs> at the same time and that's what kind of happens here it's just like i kind of like having these just for film for film purposes i like having these are just bad guys and they're just evil but in this case we have one guy that's like fuck man i didn't really want to do that <laughs> no it, it's funny that you bring that up because i think i was talking to my brother about that not that long ago where it's like it's silly to think of it in these terms but i do kind of miss the the gi joe slash transformers formula of you know cobra and uh, the decepticons where it's like they're just bad like like you may like them as characters but at the end of the day they're always going to be the bad guys because in the decepticons case they have the fucking symbol branded on them forever yeah. but i mean case in point we have a transformers series coming out on netflix right now that apparently from minute one uh the seemingly the whole point of it is to sympathize with the decepticons but it's just it's an antiquated way of thinking it's it's not how like even like children's media especially children's media is just not that way anymore mm -hmm. where um it's a very good message yes for sure it's very good to tell kids that you know like every organization isn't i mean some are just outright bad but but like at the end of the day individuals occupying an organization all have individual egos and are individual people unto themselves so you can't just like cast a, the widest of nets and just be like oh fuck all of them it's like no there there may be some decent people in there but for like people in our age range it's like that's not how children's media was when we were kids it's like no there there were black and white like good and bad characters <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm i'll be honest i'm someone who's against the death penalty and uh i might be coming up on against life without parole uh so that i it, it completely contradicts my outlook on that you know bad people are good but like in movies i'm like no 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 no, no. they need to be all the way bad i need <laughs> no reasoning behind their bad behavior although it is good to teach kids like yeah people are bad but there's reason there's a reason yeah, why they turned out there's usually that way. a reason why they are the way they are. Which I agree um, with, yes. Just keep it out which, of my mind. Yes, <laughs> I, I agree with it too. But in terms of telling a story and, and like giving me those, the, giving me the cheap heat, like making me pop for moments in a movie or something, 
yeah, it's a lot easier when I can just point to that game and say, I hate that motherfucker. Or, <laughs> and I, I want to I see him get his Spielbergian comeuppance. <laughs> because if someone kicks a dog in a Spielberg mm-hmm. movie at minute 10, by minute 90, he is going to get torn in half. <laughs> <laughs> Usually by dogs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I was going to say... Even if you are going to do that, I think there's a way to make it. Like, if you're going to try to humanize the villain a little bit, I think a perfect example would be Tim Burton's uh, Batman Returns. Uh, The Penguin. Uh, He was abandoned by his family. And uh, you kind of feel like that opening sequence, which we'll get to next week. um, That opening sequence, you kind of feel bad for him, you know? They just, like, send him down the river and they're just dead-eyed, don't care about it. Um but you still, like, throughout that film, like, you do not like the Penguin. You do not root for him. I mean, you like him, but you're not rooting for him. Um, and when he gets his, you're like, good, fuck that guy. No, that that is actually a very good example of that. Because you do get to go, you get to visit the entire spectrum with him. Mm. Because, like, from moment one, he's portrayed as sympathetic. Um, and then he abducts Christopher Walken, <laughs> which, you know... Not so much abducts. I think he was just lonely and he just wanted to hang out with Christopher Walken because yeah. why not? I would I would want that too. Dad, go but... save yourself. <laughs> Dad, go. <laughs> go. Chip. <laughs> Chip, no. <laughs> uh. But the, but yeah, I, that moment when uh, he's running for mayor or whatever and they throw eggs and tomatoes at him and then he jumps off the bridge back into the sewers, that's like he, he flew too close to the sun kind of yeah. like. And that that's the prototypical Tim Burton arc, where it's like there's a monster who comes to live among us, he gets too comfortable, something bad happens, and then he comes back with a vengeance. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll but, get to that later. Um, but yeah, the the character in this, uh, Fuse, uh, I think it's interesting that you point to like him being sympathetic, because he's really not. Um, he's actually exactly what everybody seems to think he is, and he's kind of a monster, but he's a very quiet one that um, it, he's almost like a sociopath where it's like they society put him where he belonged. And now, like, actually, he has a little bit of a Tim Burton arc where he, he starts to, like, get cozy mm-hmm. outside of his box. And that's like, oh, you you don't belong there, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, that's why the ending, that's why the tone was strange, because at the end, I'm like, wait, did he ch- okay that was odd odd move yeah it's kind of like how uh wolf mother in a uh, full metal jacket it's like no 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 no, don't let this guy out of the marines <laughs> you need him yeah, keep him over there <laughs> keep him over there we don't want him we don't want him stateside no you don't want him running a butcher shop or something <laughs> <laughs> but yeah in fuse's case um i mean we barely touched on the plot because it's not super important i mean we're having a good conversation regardless but like the the plot is kind of about we have two rival organizations we have the capital police and then we have the other police the police police mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're butting heads with each other and there's an incident at the beginning of the movie which begins with a riot um and a very young girl uh i think she's like just out of high school uh is carrying a satchel bomb and she's actually like serving as a courier during this riot. So she's helping the anarchist movement in the capital. And uh, our protagonist of Husei uh, corners her in the sewers um, and he's holding her up at gunpoint, but he does not shoot her. And uh, she blows herself up in a panic and uh, nearly kills him, only injures him. 
and then following the incident, he's interrogated by his superiors and sent to like a tribunal where they're trying to determine whether he's fit to continue to serve or whatnot. And it seems like they're not sure, but they they send him back to be retrained, basically. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> that one got me. So uh, in boot camp, uh, cell phones were kind of picking up when I was in boot camp. They were still shitty. Um, you might have your your razor or you still had your like shitty cell phones. They weren't the the deal that they are now, where it's like no control. <laughs> um, you do not have control. They all have phones. You're not going to stop them. Yeah. Um, but basically, they said uh, like one, you have to surrender your phone before you go in. Totally normal. Boot camp for the Navy is eight weeks. So at the end, you have your family come meet you, and then generally after boot camp, you uh, you go straight to. Uh, whatever school you're going to go to, like for whatever job you have. So you see your family for a couple days and then you go. Uh, thing is, is you see your family, but you still have to stay at, you know, at uh, the naval uh, training uh, area for another couple of days. So what happens is people will pass off their phones to them. Like, listen, I'd like to go ahead and have my phone because I'm not going to have it when I get to where I'm going. So if they catch you with a phone, they'll send you back to week one which is bananas like it's like Whoa. holy sh- you just lost two months of your life and you have to go through all that shit again there's nothing scarier than that <laughs> when you're in <laughs> it's like the worst so he he took it like a champ then <laughs> yeah so in this case he's like yeah you got to go back for retraining I'm like motherfucker like i'd be so yeah mad. the fact that he didn't break anything uh, on his way out of that building i guess points to the fact that he is potentially a sociopath <laughs> oh, he has the uh he has the demeanor of anton shakur where he's just like not dead-eyed but just like there's a violent person behind that like behind that quiet thing in front of you like there's something deep down in there yeah no blackest eyes like a doll's eyes eyes. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah actually there's a lot like the part of the title of this film uh jinro uh, literally it's the two kanji for person and wolf so it could be translated as werewolf (laughs) basically um but that's kind of i guess his character like there's um countless references to little red riding hood in this in this film in fact like the story is explicitly told to us via like narration of the countless sequences of people just like traveling around the city in silence Mm -hmm. with a narration covering it but we basically get to have the I guess the original version of the story told to us the much more dark and violent version of the story. The Grimm's fairy tale (laughs) version. Yeah. Um, And all signs point to his character being essentially a wolf in human clothing. Um, And like you said, his presentation, just from an aesthetic standpoint, he very seldom emotes with his face. Uh, He, he's a lot bigger than most of the other characters in the film. He seems like kind of a scary guy, to be honest. (laughs) Um, I, I like, uh, I noticed this, uh, I'm, I'm rewatching Veep right now, which is great, great show if you've never watched it. It's a lot of fun. It's, I noticed it's a little too snappy. It's a little too fast, but the comedy beats, like it's just, just, just stacked. But there's a character, I think it's the, uh, the Finnish or Swedish prime minister. I can't remember. Um, but she's like, I think she's an American actress, but she does like the accent and everything. But she starts to talk about Santa Claus and like, you know how Santa Claus comes and he, uh, gives the the present to the children unless they are bad and he takes them away and then he beats them or something i get excited when i hear somebody with a european accent about to talk about santa claus i'm like all right wh- wh- what's your santa claus now <laughs> what's going on with him <laughs> what you got what you got for me 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's different wherever you go, and yeah, there are certain European countries that have a very different, different take on version of Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, my girlfriend's family's uh, from Holland. And, oh, uh, I guess they call him Sinterklaas. <laughs> <laughs> what does he do? <laughs> um, something about clogs. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the details, but th- it's very different. I'm trying to think of like what would Holland be. He's like, like what would Santa Claus do? Like he comes in, he's like, yes, he. Uh, we don't give him cookies. We give him little cherries. We get him like the little cherries that come in the jar. Uh, yes, we just put those out on a plate, and he takes those, and then he gives us one present to each. Like that would be like their weird version of Santa. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. When when I first started talking to her, I like told her straight up. It's like so. All I know about the Dutch is that they, f- the Indonesians don't like them, and they're good at kickboxing. So maybe kickboxing Sinterklaas. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, some of the best kickboxers in the world come from all. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't anyway. know how the fuck I got there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. But you said uh, something so yeah. that reminded me of that. I can't think of what. <laughs> You just wanted to talk about Santa. <laughs> no, I think something you something you said reminded me of Veep, and then oh no 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 no. So it was the Grimm's, the Grimm's fairy yes. tale about yes. how like different iterations. Um, that's what I was gonna also ask you about. Um, mm. so I think you can't really. I don't think you can build suspense well enough to make uh, like horror anime like like uh, atmospheric. In in my opinion, I I just don't think it would translate well. And I was going to ask you, what do you think would be better is if you translated, like, Viking or, like, Swords and Sandals style movie, like Braveheart, where you have brutal violence. Do you think that would translate better or something more like Rambo, where it's more people being shot? What what do you think would be better? Um, In terms of animating, I want to say it's much more common to see swords. Okay. Um, Because I think the... I think the technique of animating the movement of swords and like impact of rigid objects against like soft objects Mm -hmm. as in like a sword impacting a body um i think that's just generally more known uh to animators um in fact there's there's a highlander anime (laughs) um like actually like the highlander story Mm. but like japanese animation animated by the same people who worked on ninja scroll by the way Mm. Um, it's not very good but the novelty of it is is certainly fun Uh, it's just like oh shit it's highlander but ninja scroll at the same time (laughs) but um yeah gun stuff uh actually i think it's kind of rare um to see to see stuff like this, like we see in general, where like we see bo- bodies being riddled with bullets and stuff, like the the consideration of physics that goes into animating that well is very difficult um, to make that look right. I guess one of my favorite movements, just like just a um, like a shot or a few shots within a scene, is in Terminator Two. Yes, Matt, I said it. Uh, <laughs> um, where uh, near the end where there's the the car battle basically we've got the truck in the front we got the the semi in the back and uh arnold's stunt double gets out of the truck walks into the back grabs the machine gun and then it's just it's nice he just you see him go from the bed of the truck onto the semi and just point blank machine guns the fuck out of the t-1000 that this this sequence i mean i mentioned that because this sequence reminds me of that like the amount of bullets that they're putting into these people are through the roof. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I was laughing. <laughs> it's hard not to uh, because the overkill factor is on par with like a RoboCop or something. Oh, it, where it's like, oh my, like stop, stop, he's already it's dead. Like Glorious Bastards. It's just like, yes, he is. He is chunky salsa. He is. He is an ex person at this point. <laughs> um, yeah. So I love that scene too. By the way, yeah. um, I like that it kind of demonstrates that like the T one thousand. It takes him a second to collect himself. Mm. So if you just like tear him the fuck up enough, like he's going to be out of it for just a couple seconds, long enough to crash the truck. But um, the sequence that Kyle is referring to in general is uh, during the opening riot sequence. Uh, things escalate because that girl handed off a satchel charge to uh, somebody. I mean, we're living in Seattle. Mm. Uh, this happens seemingly every time. Uh, you have people doing like a protest or like rallying for a cause and then some motherfucker just runs up and starts smashing shit and all the blame gets tossed at everyone and nobody knows who did what anymore because it just turns into a blob of chaos i have to send you a video some guy posted um how to be a professional uh protester and it's fucking <laughs> hilarious uh <laughs> please send that to i'm me, getting yeah. ready to send it to you <laughs> okay because uh, well, anyway while I was, he has a he has a beat where he's just like his thing is he's protesting a bunch of different stuff he's like here's when i was protesting this and as i was watching this he was like yeah this is when i was pro- uh, protesting the uh, uh what, what are the police squad called the uh the core police is that what they are the capital police capital panzer police. Ker- kerberos panzer corps this is like when i was abroad in japan i was uh, protesting the capital police bad day though somebody threw a bomb i got out of there <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, what we're going to get to here is uh, what the Capitol Police actually do. Um, so during the riot, actually, um, they have the like just the normal police, the police police, and mm-hmm. they all have their like riot shields and batons and stuff and whistles because Japanese police. We don't have whistles here, do we? Oh, we could probably <laughs> use some. I think that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you could get a lot done with a whistle. Citizens man. would probably like some, uh, really like some uh, whistles. Yeah. No, you could get a lot done with some white gloves and a whistle, man. (laughs) And a good attitude. (laughs) But uh, things escalate because uh, the gal in her little red riding riding hood Mm -hmm. outfit, uh, she hands off a satchel charge to someone with the anarchist movement who tosses it, causing an explosion. No one knows who did it, so the cops charge and start beating ass, Mm -hmm. um, like you do. Um, Meanwhile, the, the Capitol Police with their uh like steel armor and red goggles and like german nazi outfits mm-hmm. and uh tanks essentially they're just kind of hanging back like being like well you know this is japan and like paperwork's a mother so we're just not going to do nothing until we're asked to <laughs> oh they knew what they were doing when they developed their brand that they, they, they didn't just fall on that yeah. oh yeah they have hugo boss all over the place this <laughs> <laughs> is like japanese equivalent of hugo boss but anyway um, things escalate in the sewers because the anarchists like slash terrorists are like trying to maneuver throughout the crowd like by maneuvering maneuvering underneath the crowd th- via the sewers so they're displacing so they can throw more bombs basically and they're supplying the crowd with molotovs and stuff um, but the capitol police intercept them in the sewers and uh, like i said these guys are all wearing heavy suits of armor um and they're all carrying individual MG42s. And an MG42, folks at home, if you're not aware, is the guns from Omaha Beach. Mm-hmm. A, a German machine gun, not assault rifle, machine gun. <laughs> yes, not even that, just... 
<laughs> just an aggressive <laughs> whirr. <laughs> yeah. A you know you're fucked if you don't even hear the. If there's a space in between shots. <laughs> no, if, if the gun that is firing at you needs to have its barrels changed out because it overheats, yeah. it's dangerous. The, it's a problem. I did like the sound design here because the, uh, the little militia, they have their own little machine guns and they have a sound like. And then they turn on just... Like I said, the gun porn is definitely an element of this movie, but I'm glad you pointed out the sound because the the soundtrack in this film is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Um, Some really beautiful melodies. It's uh, by Hajime Mizoguchi, who is not super well-known to me, but he did a hell of a job with this. But just the overall soundscape of this film is very good. Like footfalls and uh, like water droplets and like fingers running over stone surfaces everything is very well considered and it adds to the realism element that plays hand in hand with the very carefully coordinated like realistic animation so i have a a new apartment i'm in right now and i've got a nice big big square sink it's really nice i really like this big sink um and my faucet it turns off but what happens is is there's some kind of dripping that happens after i turn off the the sink and it's not from the faucet it's it's actually in the drain and it is that really loud boop, boop, oh boop. no yeah, it doesn't it only lasts for a few minutes but it's like i'm like am i in a cartoon right now why is that so loud no i mean that's like straight out of like a goofy cartoon or something yeah. <laughs> I'll, try, I'm, I'll try to pick it up on the mic sometime <laughs> see, see if I can, <laughs> I can get it. oh that that can be your side gig kyle you can be a foley artist Ooh. from your apartment there we go <laughs> I need can get some uh, celery and some leather belts and start whacking things. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, did you have any other, anything else you want to say about? The oh, movie? I just wanted to point out the fact that people get shot in the scene, and it's like a hundred bullets per yeah, person. It's a um, lot. It's a it's a, it's Ed two hundred nine in the sewers. <laughs> it's pretty bad, but it's kind of awesome. Not gonna lie. <laughs> The the rest of the movie is I feel like it's just uh, Fuse is that his name? Yeah, Fuse. Yeah, it's just him kind of like melancholy, like yeah, don't really want to do this. I kind of like this girl. I don't really want to <laughs> do this. Kind of like this girl. Ah, yeah, you're you're not wrong. Um, like I said, the story, if you really actually cared, and it's not super important because even I don't care. <laughs> but like the actual, no, that honestly, the the story is a very weak element. It's just a it's a mood piece. It's a look, it's a look and a feel kind of movie. Um, and I can concede that it either works for you or it doesn't. But the actual story is, it's kind of about two people who are pawns of different organizations. So that's kind of what the story is driving at is the fact that they kind of lack their individual in their individuality we're like the whole middle portion of the movie is about after the bombing after Fusei uh witnesses the girl blow herself up in front of him uh, he does show signs of like some emotional trauma because mm-hmm. he does have nightmares um that are pretty explicit and like point to that having some yeah. sort of impact on him that probably um, fucked me up too so yeah it's understandable yeah and I really like some of those dream sequences with the wolves mm. and everything. It, it's very thematic. It, it's very easily understood um, just from an emotional standpoint, what what you're supposed to be getting out of that. Um, but yeah, he gets sent back to retraining and all signs point to him. Like actually part of the reason why he doesn't dispute this is that he seems to fit in in this environment better than he does anywhere else. Like at one point he has a conversation with the gal later in the film and, and he refers to like his time 
in the Capitol Police Department is like kind of like a special time. And I feel like maybe that's like a kind of like an intrinsically Japanese thing because it's it's very common for Japanese people to like spend a lot of time a lot of time in their school environment mm-hmm. or like a lot of extracurricular activities and a lot of times like you know the dismissal bell rings and people just kind of like hang out and stick around so it's kind of like how how a lot of uh, millennials are now in mm-hmm. in the US where it's like your your place of work or whatever is your everything where it's like nobody knows how to fucking make friends anymore so <laughs> so, so they just like kind of hang out and linger <laughs> um but it kind of points to that where it's like it's like it's like his equivalent of that where it's like he found his place and it's like it may not be a glamorous place or even like a friendly place in fact all signs point to the people there not even especially liking him mm-hmm. um, but it's where he feels most comfortable um, so he goes back to retraining and whatnot and uh, then there's a lot of dialogue scenes of people like his superiors and whatnot kind of like jockeying for position and and kind of like maneuvering him like you would a, a piece on a chessboard mm-hmm. where there's there's a lot of external forces kind of like pushing him in different directions and he lacks personhood to the point that like i don't think he cares honestly as long as he gets to stay where he stay in his niche that he's found well maybe, um, maybe but things get complicated with the girl maybe that kind of speaks to um like the setting that they're in as well because it's kind of it's like uh, authoritarian kind of police state where you have people who don't want to be a part of that and if you're actively fighting against it I guess there is a part of um, I guess your personality or part of who you are that just kind of gets put on the back burner it's like listen that doesn't matter right now that's not important and maybe yeah, that's kind of the two characters struggling with that because they're on what was it two sides of the same coin uh, yeah 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 well yeah I, I think that is part of it because uh, the girl's arc, and uh, basically the girl that I'm talking about is, uh, by the way, voiced by uh, the director's wife, apparently. Oh. <laughs> um, she does a good job, especially towards the end. But um, her story is that she is, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, she's uh, positioned as uh, the, the girl who blew herself up, mm-hmm. as her sister, when in actuality she's not. Um, she was just like a delinquent of some sort that was taken in by the police department and uh, kind of made into a pawn. Um, so they tell her, so you're going to pose as this girl's sister because we have plans for him. Because the two uh, different police departments are feuding with each other and they're looking for an opportunity to like spit in each other's eye without actually like physically assaulting each other. So they're like, hmm, what if... What if a disgraced officer of the Capitol Police is witnessed, uh, like, mingling with a terrorist um, in the form of this girl? Then we can we can point to the Capitol Police as being corrupt, and we can, like, jockey for position and kind of kick them out, essentially. Um, but, yeah, she's outed at some point in the story as being, no, just some girl who kind of flirted with the terrorist organizations and whatnot, but was taken in by the police and is now kind of like a ward of the state essentially mm-hmm. so like even her identity is not her own she's she's helpless essentially she's stuck and he is too only difference is he's okay with it <laughs> like like he doesn't care as long as he gets to stay in his unit and that's where a lot of the visual elements of like the the literally like running with the the pack like running with the wolves mm-hmm. that seems to point to that where it's like this is where he's at home 
um, even if it's unseemly and kind of brutal. It's like, no, it seems to work for him. Uh, but yeah, I really like that the finale of the film where um, it's revealed that he, he's been playing her. Uh, so it turns out that there's an organization like embedded within the Capitol Police that exists as like a counter intelligence unit. Mm-hmm. So basically it's like it's a self-preservation thing where it's like we, we know there are external elements that are trying to label the po- Capitol Police as outmoded and unnecessary, but there's a lot of scary people who, who seem to thrive in this particular organization that want it to continue to just carry on, even though it doesn't really make sense for it to. Um, and it, as it so happens, uh, he's part of that, and uh, he's been using her to basically like out all the people who were trying to eliminate them um so it's a very political story and and a very uh not flat but very dry mm. political story in a lot of ways with just these bursts of violence but one thing I, uh before we get to the finale i did want to point out that's really fascinating that actually kind of like feels very fitting given the current situation in in the u.s uh, or at least in like some of the more populated parts of the u.s um, is a there's a lot of scenes where they're out and about like in in tokyo and whatnot and uh the general vibe is mostly okay mm. and i think that's fascinating because i think that's how i think that's how things really work is that like even like there's like fictionalized accounts of things like you would see in like a like indiana jones's version of berlin or something mm-hmm as opposed to like how things really were. And it's like, I want to say that when you, when you have like scary situations, like, you know, a fascist police force, like carrying machine guns and like wearing armor and rolling tanks through the streets, it's like, yes, that's there, but that's not every minute of every day. Yeah. Like, and, and that's not reality for every person that inhabits that place. Like, so it's really fascinating to see these two fugitive characters, Fusei and the girl kind of like running through Tokyo and like, most of the time it seems like a okay place to live yeah. but they do some neat things where they just like have in the background like protest marches like just like uh, they do a really neat thing where they have a shot from a child's perspective so you can't actually see the people marching you can just see like the banners they're carrying because he can't see over the people blocking them like he can't see over their shoulders and whatnot so it's like it's there but it's in the periphery i think as far as a dystopian uh like a dystopian world i think we're actually um we're headed more towards like the cloud atlas or like the fifth element where it's like they know where you are at all times they're tracking you all the time uh and then they're gonna find you super quick (laughs) and there's drones oh speaking of which uh, i watched a really terrible movie recently uh the circle um my my friend told me about it when it first came out uh he said it was hilarious for all the wrong reasons Mm -hmm. I don't agree. I don't think it's hilarious, but it's bad. Um, it's a, it's a supposed to be like a, a giant tech company story. Like uh, think like Apple or Google or mm-hmm. Amazon. Think think of that yeah. uh, line of thinking. But uh, Tom Hanks is like the CEO. Uh, Patton Oswalt is his right hand man, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Emma Watson is the main character. And uh, oh, I think I've seen the cover for that. And uh, Karen Gillan's in it. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she she's nice. Um, I like Karen Gillan quite a bit. But um, and she's allowed to speak in her natural accent, which is very nice. Australian, she's Scottish, I believe. Scottish. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, the the movie has all these grand ideas that it's putting forth about exactly what you're talking about, about like 24-7 surveillance and like um, eroding all, all walls of privacy um, in our daily lives and like drones and things like that. But other than like just throwing those ideas out there, it has nothing to do or say. <laughs> so it's just like, motherfucker, I live in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> like every idea that you're throwing out there, I've been living for yeah. like the past ten years. <laughs> like this is not news. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It, this isn't new, guy. <laughs> it's it's actually it plays into what we talked about a long time ago about uh, Kyle doesn't like social media movies. Mm-mm. And part of that has to do with the fact that social media moves so fucking fast that by the time you make a movie about it, it's not going to be that anymore. If I see, unless it's a comedy where it works sometimes, unless if I see like, whoop, whoop, I see the uh, the screen on the screen, I'm like nope, 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 can't do it. <laughs> Will not. Uh, well, we should probably get to the finale of the movie. Kyle. The finality, yes. Yeah. So this happens in the sewers again. There's actually. I don't know if there's any reason for it, but there's a lot of instances of revisiting locations in this film. Um, and what's interesting is that at first I thought maybe it's a cost-saving measure or something, um, maybe save money on background paintings or something, but they didn't do that. Like All the shots are from different angles, and in fact they do a really neat thing with continuity where um, the final gun battle in the sewers in, in the film takes place in the very beginning anyway, in the exact same place as the opening but because of that we actually see all the damage that was that was done to the environment from that opening scene where like there's bullet holes all over the place in the same room so those aren't the same paintings that somebody had to render an entirely different thing as far as telling the story it makes sense that they would go back down the sewers like you don't want this to be like out in the open Uh, i guess that makes sense yeah uh, and the way it goes down and actually part of this movie actually made me think of the killer a little bit um just the general arc where it's like uh you have a guy who kills people for a living uh does something bad to somebody who he later forms a relationship with uh he's betrayed by some people um and then the wow it's very similar now that i think about it and then there's a forced confrontation at the end where everybody gets shot basically um Although this one doesn't have the uh, everybody's blind and crawling on the floor moment <laughs> where, <laughs> where it's like, it's very sad, but at the same time, it's also secretly a little bit hilarious. <laughs> but but yeah, the, the whole finale of this is basically Fusei has uh, revealed to the girl, although he has a mouthpiece speaking for him because Fusei speaks like 10 lines in this whole fucking movie. Um, his superior, his, uh, I guess like his sergeant or whatever at at uh, the training facility is like the head of the organization. Um, He reveals to the girl that like Fusei has been aware that you've been playing him. And by the way, he's been playing you. Mm. Uh, So have fun with that. And she has like an emotional breakdown and uh, Fusei goes goose stepping down the corridors of the sewer. And uh, basically we've set up a confrontation where, like I said, the, the whole point of this counterintelligence operation was to, flush out all the people like force the people who had intent to eliminate the capitol police to make a move of some sort so they could reveal themselves so just flush them out so they so they could identify who their true enemies were and then eliminate them Uh, and so a a tracking device was placed on the girl that fusei was very much aware of so he goes down to the sewers and then he's met up by a bunch of people that upon uh 
rewatching this film. I didn't notice this the first time I watched it, but I'm pretty sure all the people that come out of the woodwork and the sewers carrying his uh, armor and his weapon uh, are in the rest of the film. They're in a lot of background scenes where he he has shifty eyes, like mm. he's he has like an animalistic quality to him. So it's very common for him to scan his environment in every scene he's in. And there's these lingering shots on just random people that are he's in public with. And what really solidified it in my mind, and I could be wrong, but what really made it jump out to me this time was uh, when he first meets the girl um, at at uh, the other girl's uh, gravesite. Um, there's a heavy set guy with a, a mustache and a ball cap mm-hmm. uh, that helps an old woman up a staircase. And the camera just kind of like looks at him for just a second. He's in the background. He doesn't even look in our direction. But his uh, his design, his silhouette is unmistakable. And he's one of the guys that pops up in the sewer. And then there's a scene where he's on a trolley with the girl and there's a woman nursing a baby. And I'm pretty sure she also popped up in the sewers. And it leads me to believe that all these people have been like shadowing him the whole time he's been with her. And, you know, all signs point to him being aware of this. He's been operating as a unit the entire time. It's just that we, the viewer, weren't aware of that. Um, So it made it a little bit more impactful, not tremendously, but it was just a neat little element that was kind of cool to discover this time. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. It's very subtle. They draw no attention to it, and most of those people don't even speak in the finale. But anyway, he suits up, and uh, he just gets to beating all sorts of ass in the sewers. And uh, there's a character that we haven't talked about at all because he's, I mean, it's it's not a character film, but basically it's somebody who's been masquerading as one of Fusei's like, only friends um, when in reality he's been making moves against him and his organization. Uh, he's part of the team that goes into the sewers to try to uh, eliminate Fusei, and sure enough, uh, Fusei kills him without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fucking brutal. <laughs> um, I love that. Th- I love that um, the guy says that uh, unlike Fusei, uh, this is much earlier in the movie, but he says like unlike Fusei, like if I'm told to shoot, like if it's the right thing to do to to shoot an enemy, I won't hesitate. So he's kind of like shitting on Fusei in that moment, like mm-hmm. saying like, oh, he's a good soldier, but he's not as good as me. Um, and it's really neat because in the finale he actually follows through on that, but it doesn't work. <laughs> so he like whips around and uh, he shoots like it's like a a single use like grenade launcher basically. And he he turns around and he shoots it at Fusei. It's kind of like Akira where they do the Kaida Tetsuo, <laughs> and uh, he shoots it and it bounces off Fusei's armor. And it's like ah, you suck. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, he gets shot to death. Um, but yeah, uh, Kyle, you you want to talk about the final scene in the movie? Yeah, uh, Fusei ends up um, either chasing down or meeting up with the girl, and they're just like in like a field alone. And yeah, it's it's after the battle, and he's like, I don't know, they're all loading up a truck and like getting ready to head out, basically. And they just have like this moment where they they chat for a second, and then they embrace, and then he you just hear a gunshot, and I'm like, wait, what the fuck? What is this all about? And he's just fucking shot her, just straight up. Uh, <laughs> like, oh damn! Yeah. Like, but like John Cusack at the end of uh, the Ice Harvest, like he just shoots her right, just right in the stomach, like an asshole. Like, damn! <laughs> like, okay. I'm like, I feel like I missed something here, but all right. But yeah, um, it, there's a little bit more to it. <laughs> um, so like I said, uh, there's constant allusions to a uh, Little Red Riding Hood throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Um, constant. 
Um, and this girl, uh, the one who is posing as uh, the suicide gal's uh, sister, um, the two of them have apparently formed some sort of bond or connection. It seems like definitely her bond to him is much stronger, although he definitely shows that he is in anguish when he shoots her. So you, you can argue that he he felt something for her too. Um, she gave him uh, a little Red Riding Hood book uh, that she said belonged to her sister, who's not actually her sister, uh, whatever that means. Um, and her voice and his voice can both be heard throughout the film, um, reading passages from the book, um, him often reading the lines of the wolf and her, the girl and whatnot. Um, and the last thing that she does is uh, he's handed a pistol by his, his superior and says, like, you can either continue running with the pack, uh, i.e. stay with us, uh, or you can try to run off with the girl and see what happens. And we do see that they did have guns trained on him at that moment that he wasn't aware of. So if gotcha. he hadn't shot her, they would have shot both of them. Um, so he was fucked either way. Um, anyway, uh, he has the gun and uh, the girl immediately like runs up to him and kind of like puts her head against his chest and like you said, embraces him. And uh, her last words are she's like breaking down in tears. Um, and like I said, very good vocal performance. Um, she's reciting lines from the story. Uh, she's saying the very familiar um, mother, what big eyes you have, what big teeth, what big claws, all that stuff. Uh, so she's she's like trying to reinforce that connection, I guess. It's like she's it's like she's pleading for her life, but um, in a roundabout fashion. So she's trying to force the emotionality of, of the situation. It's it's a it's a technique that I'm sure people that have to deal with hairy situations know. It's like a hostage negotiators um, uh, being trained to use people's names a lot mm. because it humanizes you. It, it forms a connection, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it, she's basically trying to do that with him. And he doesn't even look at her. He's just kind of like staring off into space. And before he shoots her, he like grits his teeth and like lets out like a groan. So you can tell he's not happy about it, but he does it. And then, like I said, we do see that there was a gun trained on him either way. And yeah, the closing line of the movie is basically um, his superior officer um, flicking a cigarette. By the way, he smokes quite a bit in this film and he makes it look sexy, <laughs> even in animation. <laughs> um, but uh, he basically... Um, just like closes the book on the story and says like and yeah that's the actual end of little red riding hood the wolf <laughs> ate the girl <laughs> german stories are fucking scary kids <laughs> yeah they are yeah um but yeah that that's basically the movie yeah did you give any more thought to what uh what what you might want to uh translate to anime have you thought about a uh property um I can't really think of any. I, I have actually been thinking about it as we've been talking. It's hard because anime can be so many different things. And like I said, I've kind of been out of the game for so long that I feel like I'd have the same reaction you would if you saw Silmarillion. Like, I'd, yeah. I'd actually scoff at the idea. Of it. I'd be kind of upset. Where it's like that Ninja Batman yeah, uh, animated movie, was, that looks fucking bitching. Uh, yeah. That looks cool. Yeah. But I'm like still kind of like, eh, I don't need this. See, I was okay with it. I watched the first part of it. I'm like, this isn't too bad. I'm not going to watch the second part, but I'm like, this doesn't look too bad. I'm fine with this. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe if you were to do um, like an eight-part epic of like Genghis Khan or something, like him just brutalizing, uh, 
I saw a, a map of the uh, Mongol Empire. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I'm like, yeah, I could, I could get into something like that if if it's gonna translate for swords. I'm like, that's why I was asking. I'm like, in that case, like Braveheart, something cool like that, or maybe we try to tell a little bit of a Genghis Khan story. Yeah, as far as I know, they've never adapted that to animation, but um, many films actually, uh, both Korean and Japanese. Uh, probably Chinese too, although I, I'm not aware of those, but I know for certain that there have been multiple Japanese and Korean films about Genghis Khan. Yeah. Um, that sounded pretty cool. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that would be cool, although... Well, he's a fascinating historical figure. I'm surprised we don't have more about him. Yeah, I, I feel like that might be by design or something. Mm. Like there might be external forces that aren't aren't super thrilled about the idea of exploring <laughs> that. And exploiting it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty I, fucking brutal. Tinfoil hat theory points to maybe China or some or some some form of someone who carries a, a very big cultural stick. What? Um, saying Kong? we don't want to talk about that because I mean, what Who's I'm that? talking about is like the the romance of the three kingdoms, like the like historical Chinese epic has been retold. It gets retold every five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like it's everywhere. It's inescapable. But like you said, nothing about Genghis Khan, Mm-mm. like nothing, <laughs> not a peep. We took a crack at it, uh, back in the, uh, sixties, I think with, uh, with John Wayne, <laughs> the conqueror or whatever. Holy shit. When I watched <sighs> the trailer for that, I'm like, you out of your fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> What were they yeah, thinking? That, that is a thing that happened. <laughs> My goodness. But yeah, did you have any um, anything you wanted to add about the uh, about the movie? No, I, I think I said more than I intended to actually. But uh, yeah, I I happen to like this movie. Um, I revisit it once every few years. Um, I don't think I've ever been swept up in it. But there's just something about the mood and um, just just the animation. Like it's I could care less about the story but the tone is unique and uh also the animation is as well because this is very rare to see films look like this in the world of animation and i kind of like cherish every instance of it because that that's largely what what keeps me coming back to japanese animation or just foreign animation in general is that we we don't really do this kind of stuff here um like this kind of like serious like attempt to to render things with with an air of realism and things like that and presented in this tone it's just it's very foreign and it's something that i happen to really like but um you can count on two hands the number of products that actually have this vibe to them so i kind of like hold hold all of them close to my heart because it's like it's probably going to be another five ten years before we get another one of these so like just like hold on to what you got <laughs> um so it's it's a very personal thing i guess where it's it's a very specific niche of of the animation category but it's something that i always keep my eyes out for all right well, yeah. um, well anyway i guess that brings a close to anime august 2 um <laughs> Do you think you'd want to do another one of these, or is this the death of Anime August, Kyle? It, I might be bowing out of Anime August. Now, if you feel that you want to keep covering uh, anime films or um, or uh, TV shows and stuff like that, feel free. Um, I just might not chime in 
on those. I wanted to do it with someone who has an appreciation for this. Okay, that's fair. Um, well, that being said, um, if you'd like to check out some of our other products, our other podcast episodes and whatnot, um, you can find those on our website at Catching Up on Cinema. Um, you can also check us out on uh, the Twitter at Catching Cinema, as well as the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. And uh, podcast is hosted pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts, so uh, hit us up anywhere you like. Um, that being said, uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will catch you next time. Ooh.